My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it really is a joy uh, to celebrate with you this morning and also to say this. As everybody else has, I get to say it too. Happy birthday. Uh, it's been a, a long time coming, and, and it's been a, a year full of grace and, uh, and just really joy in the midst of struggle and suffering. Uh, we recounted uh, just a few days ago, uh, me and Pastor Tim, about all the things that we've gone through and uh, the, the joys the tears, the, the laughter, the grace, and uh, we, we, we trust that the Lord is uh, not done with us yet. He's not done working in our midst, and, and so we are hopeful about the year to come. I want to say this as uh, we segue into our time in the Scripture. This past year, we, we, we kind of had a five-year plan, right? And we just kind of thought, well, what, this is, what would it look like for us in the first year? What would it look like in the second, third, fourth, and fifth year? And uh, the first year was a year of planting, and uh, a year of preaching and discipleship. And, and we've, we're not leaving those things in the past. We're taking those things on into the future, into this year. But this year we really thought well, it would be wonderful to be marked by permanence. And just to even think as we look around, that this isn't just a fly-by-night. This isn't just a, a one, uh, one year and then it was a good run. But we pray and hope that the Lord would continue to, to, to develop a permanence and what we've seen this past year. And so we pray that 2020 would be marked with that permanence. And in that permanence associated with that is just ordinary. We want to be an ordinary church. By ordinary, I don't mean ordinary in the typical sense. I mean an extraordinary church, but regularly extraordinary. A church that is made up of ordinary people in an ordinary city that uh, sits in ordinary chairs in an ordinary school, but that worships an extraordinary God and preaches an extraordinary gospel. And if that is what we could uh, be considered, then just ordinary in that way, that's what we desire. And then on top of all that, just another word associated with this permanence and ordinary would be the idea of just faithful. We pray that God would continue to, to allow this, what we've seen this past year, to be just what we experience time and time again, year in and year out, just a faithful people serving and worshiping a faithful God. And so that's my prayer uh, as, as a pastor here at Hagerstown Church. That's my prayer over this, this body together. As we transition, I want to invite you uh, to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and, and specifically we'll be in chapter 16, and so if you've got uh, big numbers on your, uh, in your book, you'll see uh, the big ones, That's, those are your chapters, and we're looking for chapter 16, and we'll be in verses um, 19 uh, all the way down, we'll read to verse 31, and that passage that we'll look at this morning is what the Bible calls a parable. In almost all languages, there is some way of speaking about parables or allegories, and they are brothers, parables and allegories, although they're not the same thing, they are very similar. And they, the equivalent in some languages may be, like, may be called a likeness story, or a story that teaches, or a story that, that points the way, or that has another meaning, another side meaning, that, that offers some sort of wisdom. And typically, they're, they're words that are saying something else. This is what a parable is. And so literally, uh, parable means to cast alongside, to say, it's like this. This is what Jesus does. This is his preferred way of teaching. Jesus taught him parables. They were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. And so his parables were teaching aids. And, and, and they can be thought of as extended analogies or inspired comparisons and a common description of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And I think that's helpful for us today. And so as we look at this parable this morning, the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus, I think it would be helpful for us also to consider some 
rules or principles that we could put in our tool belt as we look at parables in the future and also for this morning. And so uh, parables, when we read them, we, we end up asking the question, well, what exactly is Jesus saying as he teaches us this story? We have all types of questions. We can come up with all sorts of uh, definitions for what, the, what they mean and what they're, what they're, uh, what's all included. But I want to give some principles, and, and here's the first one. That principles are, or parables, rather, are not given in a vacuum. Parables are not given in a vacuum. They've not been given without a context. Every time that we receive a parable, there is a context. Perhaps we don't have uh, the entire sermon, but we have a sermon that Jesus is preaching, and, and inside of that sermon, encapsulated is, in that, bookended, if you will, perhaps sometimes, is a parable. And so that parable is then interpreted through the greater context. In addition to that, perhaps um, you might say, well, we, we don't have the entire uh, context. We don't have the sermon that Jesus was preaching. We just have the parable from time to time. And, and perhaps that's true. But even then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God has come to us, and we know that it is placed there, and context is key. And so just with any other passage of Scripture that we would look at and that we would read, Context is king. Context is important. So we want to make sure that we uh, recognize the context. They're not given in a vacuum. A vacuum. Um, additionally, we also want to see um, that the scripture as a whole should guide us as we gather the points or, or the, the principles of application. And so not just the immediate context, but the greater context of the word of God. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes, there, there's been times throughout uh, church history that somebody has interpreted some parable and they've explained away some minute point or detail that was given to give color and flavor even to the story, and yet it creates some extra doctrine that flies in the face of the rest of Scripture. And this would be a mistake. We, when we read parables, we want to make sure that we do interpret them in light of the entire revealed Word of God. And so, just by way of help... To you, as you read scripture, as we spend time in Luke, and we'll eventually make our way into Matthew, and to Mark, and even to John, and we come across uh, parables from time to time, just be reminded that uh, you should be governed in your interpretation by the, greater, or by the immediate context and the greater context of the Word of God. And one verse that comes to mind that I think would just is helpful for us on a small level, and then also just as we zoom out and we consider Christianity as a whole, um, 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own private interpretation. So this is, uh, this is not a private work that we do. We can just, this is what I think that it means. Well, the Bible is not trying to say something. The Bible has said something. And it's our job then to decipher what it says. And we do that specifically with parables by considering the greater uh, context and also the immediate one as well. And one last hope that I would give, and this is not an exhaustive um, a tool, a set of tools um, for interpreting parables, but one thing that I would give you lastly is this, and I didn't come up with this, um, but it's the plain things are the main things. When it comes to parables, the plain things are the main things. And in other words, it, it, not every item or, or character or action within a parable stands for something. Not, not everything is trying to tell you something. Parables are not allegories in the sense that every single thing might mean something. And so we have to be careful um, and just keep the, the plain things as the main things. But there are obvious points that are being made. And again, these are the main things. And so what is clear? What do we know for sure from this parable that we're looking at whenever we are? Well, the plain things. These are the things that the, the Lord is wanting 
to convey to us in that particular uh, situation. And so with, with these few uh, tools offered and, and in your tool belt, and write them in your Bible or somewhere else or on the back of your lube. Uh, but after we've given those, I want to jump into the text. And so it's Luke 16, and we'll read verse 19 down to 31. The Lord says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here or from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, and let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Ask God to bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless this reading. That as we look at it, that we would be enlightened, that we'd be encouraged, that we would be corrected. Father, that as a result of looking at your text this morning, Jesus, of hearing your words, we would walk from this place different, having received the truth that you long to give us this morning. And so Jesus, feed your people from your word this morning. We ask these things in, in your name. Amen. I wanna, as I typically do, I want to give you uh, what I would deduce to be the main point of this passage. And so if you're taking notes, if you're writing anything down, this would be the thing to write down. There is a judgment coming for us all. However, the Bible has been given to us so that we may be prepared for it. There is a judgment coming for us all. However, the Bible has been given to us so that we might be prepared. And just to go ahead and front load and show you what we're going to be walking through and dealing with this morning, I'm going to draw out a few points, five to be exact, that really support this main point. They're all in relation to the final judgment, and so here they are. The final judgment is coming. The final judgment is coming. This is a clear point that the scripture is making, that the parable is telling us this morning. Second, the final judgment is often surprising. The final judgment is often surprising. Third, the final judgment is enlightening. Related to surprising is this idea that it's enlightening. It reveals to us the truth. The final judgment is permanent. The final judgment is permanent. And lastly, the final judgment is avoidable, or at least you may be prepared for it. 
So let's jump back into the text this morning there with that first one. We're looking for the final judgment is coming, but let's look back at verse 19. We'll read verses 19 down to 23 again. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The fact that it says there in verse 19 that it was a rich man really goes without saying, because as we read further, that's supported by this idea that he wore purple. We won't go into much detail here, but you didn't wear purple unless you were rich. And not because it was like, hey, hey, only didn't you hear only purple, only rich people wear purple, and so you better let, let that go back. Well, it wasn't available to anybody but to the rich. The process by which even the color purple was, was made either, either imported or, or through some tedious process, only rich people could afford it. So here we have this rich man, and it's obvious because he is clothed in purple and fine linen. Again, likely imported, expensive clothing, the finest. And it goes on to say that he feasted sumptuously every day. This might be really difficult for us to even understand because in the context of, uh, of this passage, of this parable, of Jesus' hearers in the first century, uh, likely they could not relate to this idea of faring sumptuously every day as it relates to food. But we can. We definitely can. There's probably hardly been a day that you've ever gone through that you did not fare sumptuously or not have the ability to fare sumptuously. And, and perhaps that's not true of all of us, but yet even in comparison of the United States to the rest of the world, we are a country who typically, day after day, fares sumptuously every day. And so I can imagine that this story, as Jesus tells the story, it doesn't do much for us, but it invokes dreaming as Jesus tells this story. People began to hear it. Even the rich people there of the day don't wear purple often and don't fare sumptuously every day or don't feast sumptuously every day. It's almost like hearing a story about somebody winning the lottery. They begin to hear this story in their minds or they're just sucked into the story and they're like, man, wouldn't it be great to be the rich man? Wouldn't it be great if we fared or feasted sumptuously every day? But this rich man, he knew what it was like, right? He goes on to say in verse 20, and at his gate, this, the, the word behind the, the, the English word gate is, is not just like a rickety old rusty gate like I have behind my house. It's chain link and it's wore out. The dogs tried to fight through it too many times and, and the, the finish is worn off because it's 40 years old, right? That's not the kind of gate that it's speaking of. It's speaking of a grand gate. The kind of gate that as you would walk by, your jaw would drop and you would know exactly who lives in that place just by the gate. And in contrast, there's been somebody that is there at the gate for some time. There in verse 29, it says he was laid. That's a kind way to put it. Laid, the, the word there is actually could, could mean tossed. It could mean tossed. There was a man that had been tossed, and his name in particular was Lazarus. I want to stop just a minute. Oftentimes people, when they interpret this passage, they actually would say that this is not a parable, that this is a true story, because typically when Jesus would tell a parable, he would not use proper names. This is, I think, the, the first and only time that Jesus does, does that. I'm not exactly sure, but I believe that it is. Either way, it's atypical. And so some people say, well, this is actually a true story, and it is not a parable, and I would say that is not the case. And, and the exact reason as to why I'll reveal toward the end of our time together this morning. But this poor man was laid at the gate of the rich man. 
What supports this idea that he is laid there or cast there, dropped there at the gate? It says that he was covered with sores. I don't want to be too graphic, but it's there. And the seventh grader in me wants to go ahead and just flesh that out a little bit. The dum flesh it out, right? These, this, these sores are not just, he, he doesn't just have a boo-boo. It's not just a band-aid. The sores here is a, he's covered in sores. And these sores are not the kind ones. They're not the beautiful ones, if there can be one. These sores are nasty. These sores are weeping. These are the types of sores that you don't want anybody to see. They're the types of sores that you do not want to have on your body as they are extremely painful. And here this man has been tossed at the gate of the rich man. It goes on to say, to support this idea that he is a poor man, that he desires to be, to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. When we read that again in our context, we think, oh, well, we have crumbs every single day. My wife and I, we have a gate in our home, as it were. We have a, a table, and as I said a moment ago, I would consider us to be rich just because we're Americans. And there, when we eat our food, we have six children. Nothing's wrong with us. We know how it works. But from time to time, crumbs fall off of our table. And there is a poor animal that waits at the gate, at the door to the, to the upstairs. And he waits, she waits rather, with her snout just on the top level there. And she's waiting to be fed from the crumbs that fall from our table. And typically there are. And so one of us, when we finish our meal, will call for Addie, and she'll run up there. She knows exactly what we're doing. She'll look straight to me, and I'll point to wherever the big pieces are, and she'll go to those first, and then she cleans up, and she knows the drill. Then she goes back downstairs because she sheds, and so we leave her downstairs. But this is not exactly what's taking place here. This, this man desiring to be fed from what falls from the rich man's table it, it goes ahead and it underlines the fact that this is a rich man. Let me show you what I mean. It, it's not been my experience, but I've read this. That oftentimes, if you just had money, instead of blowing your nose with $100 bills, you would demonstrate your richness by taking the bread that would be at your meal, that you would dip into the oils, into the different sauces, you would take that bread after it got onto your hands, all the oils, and when you were finished, you would take a piece of bread and almost like a napkin, because you didn't have napkins that you could just go pick up at the dollar store. And so almost as a napkin or a paper towel, they would wipe their hands on a piece of bread, almost to kind of scrape it off what was left, the, the residue, and they would throw it on the floor. And so this is what Lazarus, this poor man laid at the gate, is desiring to be fed with. So we have a Clearly a rich man and clearly a poor man. I love this word, moreover. If that wasn't enough, even the dogs come by to lick his sores. So what is, what's your reaction to that, by the way? It's either like, oh, well, at least he had some company. Maybe you're a dog lover. Maybe you're like, oh, well, this is, this is great. Like he was kind of helping out the dogs. This is like totally gross. But either way, these dogs are not domesticated animals. This is not a pleasure. The other day, our, one of our children was sitting on the floor, and we were at a friend's house, and the dog came up and began to lick all over the face, and, and she didn't appreciate it, and I don't think that Lazarus appreciated this either. This, these dogs coming, all, his only friends, as it seems, coming to lick his sores. And so it's a sad scenario, but it's a strong contrast 
And it's there intentional. This rich man, extremely rich. This poor man, extremely poor. This is the introduction to the story. This is the introduction to the parable. But what happens to these men? Surely that can't be the end, and, and no, it's not. It says in verse 22 that the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It goes on to say that the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. Let's walk through this. This is pretty interesting. It says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In contrast, the rich man also died and was buried. It's interesting. The poor man, he's not buried. Possibly he was. Either way, it's not mentioned here. Maybe in the same way that he was tossed at the gate of the rich man, he was also tossed outside of the city. Who knows? The poor man died, and while he might not have received much care while he was here on earth, he was carried he was held up by angels and carried to Abraham's side. I want to talk about Abraham's side. What is Abraham's side? Well, maybe your translation says Abraham's bosom, which just means Abraham's side. Oftentimes we think that this is a proper name. This is a location, that, and this is the name, Abraham's side. And this is a place where I would just say, just pointing back, we want to be careful in how we interpret parables. Abraham's side is, is not a geographical location. Uh, it's, it is a proper name in the sense that it's Abraham. This is a proper name, but his side is just saying, this man was taken to where Abraham is. This man was taken to where Abraham was. And so we want to be careful with, with other doctrines that, now, uh, that are unclear and un- actually not even named and out of some obscure uh, passage, or uh, not a passage, but obscure detail that we create a new doctrine or truth that, that is not, in fact, truth. And so this poor man is carried to Abraham's side. More about that in just a moment. But the rich man, he also dies. He receives a burial. He's cared well here. He's cared, he's cared for well while he's here on earth, even his body. But then it says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So this man finds himself in hell and he's in torment. So there's quite a contrast. There's quite a flip-flop going on here. Rich and poor, neglected and cared for, buried, left out, carried to Abraham's side, and in torment in Hades. So this is a typical construct or component of parables, this idea of a contrast, and they reveal to us something that's very important. And it's something that's obvious to all, and it's a tender thing to talk about, but I think it's important. This is a point that Jesus is making, that's this. The final judgment is coming for all. The final judgment is coming for all. In other words, you could say it this way, death waits for no man. Death waits for no man. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, if you make notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to write that down somewhere in the margin says this, just, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's a song that I think is interesting uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. So I'll quote them this morning. Some of you guys don't know the name. You, don't even, you, you, don't, you think I just made that name up. I didn't make that name up. If you do think I made it up, you're probably a millennial. 
But I want to read a pa- a, just a part of that song to you this morning. It says this, Through the corridors of sleep, past shadows dark and deep, my mind dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real. I can't touch what I feel. And I hide behind the shield of my illusion. He says this, So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. He goes on to say, to play the, or, uh, no matter if you're born, to play the king or pawn, for the line is thinly drawn between joy and sorrow. So my fantasy becomes reality, and I must be what I must be and face tomorrow. So I'll continue to continue to pretend my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. I want to point out two things, uh, really sub-points to this idea that the final judgment is coming, that death waits for no one. First, that it is appointed unto man once to die. There's not a person in this room that does not face that. This is a reality. And you might say, well, it's a sad reality. Shouldn't we focus on the happy things? Yes, and pretend that our lives will never end, and that flowers never bend with the rainfall? Is that what we are to do? Well, of course not. That's that's what Jesus is calling our attention to, that, that we will one day die. And that judgment is coming. And they say that there are two things in life that are sure, and that's death and taxes. And Jesus is underlining death. Incidentally, he underlines taxes as well in another passage. But death is sure. You could say it this way, you won't make it out alive. And no one can escape it. Another point that this is making is that death is the great equalizer. That's been said for a long time. It doesn't matter where you go in this world, how many places that you travel, what you amass in your pockets and in your bank account and in your sheds behind your house. It doesn't matter. You'll not make it out with anything more than the guy laying at your gate. One curious man asked another another who was close to the late Rockefeller. He said, so how much did he leave behind? And that man replied snarkily, all of it. He left it all behind. It doesn't matter how much. He didn't take a dime with him. Death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what you've enjoyed in this life or what you've suffered through. We will all walk through the gate or corridor of death. And it is the great equalizer. And Jesus is calling our attention to that. He's calling those who are in his presence that day, that morning, whatever it was. Maybe they're so distracted by all the things that are around them. Maybe they are like Simon and Garfunkel. They're encouraging themselves and others to pretend that their lives will never end, and this is foolishness. In the words of the the wise king of old in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, the Bible says, it's better to go to a funeral than a party. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. That's my translation. Why would it be better to go to a funeral than than to a party? Because it puts things in perspective. It puts things in perspective. So my encouragement is not that we walk through life with sad, long faces, discouraged all the time, recognizing that it will end soon. The end is near, the end is near, and that's the songs that we should sing. Of course not. But it's also just as foolish for us to live our lives ignoring the fact that judgment is coming. Look again there at verse 22. It says, the poor man died, again, no burial. He's carried then to Abraham's side. The rich man, he also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. 
I can tell you this. I don't know about the poor man. He's not the point of the story, by the way. This is a story about the rich man. And the poor man is just there, Lazarus is just there to add some contrast. But I can tell you this, that when the poor man died and he found himself in Hades and in torment, that he was surprised. I can also say that those who would have been hearing Jesus tell this story, many of them, they would have been shocked. Shocked to find that the rich man, the one that it appeared was receiving the blessings of God, would be in heaven, and that the one that appeared to have the curse of God on his life would find his or in hell, and that the one who had the curse of God apparently would be in heaven. This would have been a shock for those in that first century. And that is the second point that Jesus is making. They, he's saying the final judgment, it may surprise you. It may surprise you. I want to clarify a few things quickly as we look at this passage. This is what it's not saying. Let's talk about what it's not saying in regards to this, this contrast, this flip-flop, as it were. It's not saying that rich are bad and poor are good. It's not what it's saying. And yet there are many that want that theme to be what the Bible is, is resonating, and it's not. It's not saying that rich people are bad and poor people are good. And so if you have that in your mind, you need to set that to the side. Jesus is not teaching that. Additionally, he's not saying that if, if your life here is good then in the afterlife it will be bad, and it will, that's where it will equalize. Or vice versa, if it's, if it's good here, it will be bad there, or whatever, whichever one I said. That's not what it's saying either. Jesus is not teaching that there will be some kind of an equalizing, and everything's going to be fair. If it was really easy for you here, it's going to be tough for you in the afterlife or in the next life after the judgment, and that's, that's not true. As a matter of fact, one thing that I would point to that would just dismantle the one piece that would make that, uh, that argument fall apart is that where did the poor man go? He went to Abraham's side, and where would Abraham be? Well, this man was a friend of God, the Bible says. This man was a man of faith. That's what the Bible says about him, that he was a man of faith and that he was a friend of God. And so this man, I can tell you, is with the Lord. And so if Abraham's with the Lord and the poor man is also with Abraham, then that means the poor man is with the Lord. And then that, go, that demonstrates to us that Wealth is not bad. And so rich people aren't bad. Poor people aren't necessarily inherently good. And that the uh, judgment is not about equalizing what you've, the pain you've experienced with the joy that you will as well. But one thing that it is saying is that the kingdom of God, it's demonstrating that the kingdom of God is, in fact, an upside-down kingdom. And I would actually say that it's a right-side-up kingdom, but that we operate... And are governed by a worldview that is, in fact, upside down. And contrary to the word of God, it's, it's backward. And Jesus is highlighting that. He's contrasting that. And he's saying, you, if you are operating in the, in the throes and, and philosophy of this world, that you are going to be seriously and sadly confused when you see the judgment. You'll be surprised. You see, the rich man, when he saw Lazarus, he thought, this man is cursed by God. He doesn't have anything. He has no one, and yet me, I have everything. But he was surprised in the end. So maybe you could say it this way. You can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge it by its contents. And so if you judge both Lazarus and the rich man by their covers, you might think, well, it is 
it is fitting that the rich man would go to heaven and that the, the poor man would go to hell. After, after all, one is blessed by God in this life and one is cursed. And so I'm sure that will translate into the, to the next. But yet, when you look at the contents, when you look at the contents of the heart of the rich man, and we can see if we take a moment and peer into through even through this parable, we're able to see a little bit about what really was in his life. What he really did with his time and what he did with his money. I would just like to pause for a moment and demonstrate to you. Just as we can go back and excavate what was actually taking place in the heart of this rich man, we can also do the same thing with you. But we don't have to go back so far. We can actually look at our bank statements. We can look at our calendars. Both of these two things, amidst other tools, but these two specifically will inform you and those around you about who you are and what's important to you. If we look at the life of the rich man, we know that he loved himself more than anybody else and that God was not on his radar. Again, this point is not about Lazarus. The point is not that the poor will be then blessed by God, but we can deduce that Lazarus was a man of faith. Why would he be at Abraham's side? Both, we can assume that Lazarus and the rich man were both children of Israel, part of the children of Israel. Even Abraham says to the rich man, child, child, he's saying, not as in a spiritual sense that he is a son of Abraham, as Christians are today, but in a genetic sense, he says, child. And yet, there he is in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven. And so we can assume that Lazarus in heaven, Lazarus, Lazarus with Abraham, that he also is a man of faith. He was governed and guided by the principles of the word of God. Even the gospel as it's found in the Old Testament and prophesied of. In other words, the rich man is surprised that he's going to hell. Lazarus, I don't know that he was surprised that he found his way to heaven, that he was carried there. You see, the, the life of the rich man was evidenced against himself. Jesus is saying to the crowd, it's possible that you'll be surprised as well. And so just take a moment and consider your own life. Is it possible that you'll be surprised as the rich man was? Or are you like one of the Pharisees that were there in the crowd as they hear Jesus telling this story that are also shocked and even outraged that this would take place? Which are you? Which are you more like? Consider your own life. What evidence is there in your life? that you have faith. Again, our calendars and our bank accounts, they tell the greatest tale. They, they, they tell the greatest story. And they provide the most information. So Jesus is saying, I think that some of you may be surprised. I hope that that is not true of any of us this morning, and yet it may be. And so the warning goes out. If you have your Bibles open, I want to encourage you just to skip back to verse 13 in that same chapter. Jesus takes a moment in between two parables and he offers some information, some, almost a commentary, if you will, on these two stories, on these two parables. And he says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. We don't know the story of the rich man. We could throw him under the bus. 
under the, the camel herd there, whatever it is. We don't really know. Perhaps he just hated God and he didn't even try. And he, he loved money and he, he didn't try to serve both, but he ended up just wholeheartedly serving money. We, that could have been him, but maybe he was not so evil, right? Not so just disgusting and terrible. Maybe he really did try to serve both. Maybe he even wanted to serve God. But money crept in there. There's another translation, several translations that use the term instead of money, mammon. Mammon's an interesting term. And it, it does mean money, but it's, it's more than just money. You see, the love of money is the root of all evil. But in that idea, again, it's not money. It's not paper. It's not currency that's evil. But think about this. Mammon or money, it's the grease by which the gears of the world and its philosophy turn. It's the grease by which the gears of the world and its philosophy turn. It's what makes things work. And it stinks of worldly philosophy. And it's what makes it even possible. And so it's part of the game. It's part of success. And it reeks of idolatry. And so you can't do both. You can't serve God and idols at the same time. You can't serve God and yourself at the same time. And yet this is what likely the rich man fell prey to. And there's a warning that you may as well fall prey to that same thing. To you I would offer this. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, all of your needs will be added to you. Oftentimes we want to provide for our families. We want to provide for ourselves. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in fact, there is much that is right about that. And yet, in our desire to not fall off one side of the horse, that would be to be lazy and to not provide for our families and to not earn our own keep, which is a biblical principle in, a, in some sense. We fall off the other side. We fall in love with money and the honor and prestige and position that it brings. Again, perhaps this is what the rich man fell prey to. Jesus offers, he says this again, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What does it profit if your bank account would give you the opportunity to boast the richest man in Hagerstown? What would you boast then? What have you really gained if you lose your own soul? As we see of this rich man, this is a, that, that's a commentary of his life. And so I would offer you this. The only way to be prepared for the next life is to prepare in this one. The only way to prepare, be prepared for the next life is to prepare in this one. This parable, it, again, it's not about Lazarus. It's about a rich man and how he failed to, prepare, to be prepared to stand before God. And he operated his life as if it was just here, just the here and now, and that there is no tomorrow. He operated really not in the principle of uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but just eat, drink, and be merry, and it will last for eternity. To him, there was no tomorrow. To him, there was nothing to be prepared for other than maybe a financial downturn or, 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 or hunger, and he had those bases covered. Spiritually speaking, he was left unguarded and unprepared. It's as if the point of his existence was just the here and now and for himself. 
And I would argue this, that your life is shaped by the principles that you operate by. His life was not an accident the way that it turned out. This is what he chose. These were the principles that he operated by. And we can assume that the same was true of Lazarus. That a man of faith, loving God, loving others, repenting and turning from his sin and trusting the Lord for forgiveness, this is Lazarus' life. This is not the rich man's. So I would say this. I would argue that your view of tomorrow affects your today. Your, your view of tomorrow affects your today. The way that you see tomorrow playing out affects how today will play out for you. Let me give you an example. You may not believe me, but young man, if you perceive or think that you're going to be going on a date tomorrow, what does that mean that you'll be doing today or tomorrow morning perhaps? Taking a shower for the first time in weeks, right? <laughs> Responsible adults, you, you, per, you perceive that at one point in time, you'll have the opportunity to retire, or at least it will be the right time. And so what do you do? You begin to put money back. Why? Because you believe that you will one day retire and that you will need money to do so. And so the, the way that we view tomorrow, the way that we view the next week or the next year even, it affects the way that we act today. In the same way, if, I were, if somebody were to say that a building that you were in, not this one, but some building that you were in was on fire, if you truly believed it, what would it do? Immediately, it would change the way that you're acting. Well, even if well, I'm, I'm drinking my coffee now, can you give me a second? No, of course. If, if you believed that it was going to harm you in some way, if you really believed there was a fire, it would affect the way that you're acting even right now. And so Jesus is arguing, and he's doing a fantastic job of it, that your view of tomorrow affects your today. And he's saying the rich man lived his life in that way. It was no accident. That's what he believed, and he lived his principles out. And Lazarus, we can assume the same of. So Jesus is kindly, ever so kindly, reminding us even today, and the people that were there. Because remember, the rich man and Lazarus are not real people. He's telling a story. And no doubt many have walked this path, but they've stumbled even over Jesus' warning here, kindly reminding us that the end of life is near for all and sooner for and closer for some of us. And he's giving us the information that we would not be surprised at judgment, but that we would actually be prepared. That we would actually be prepared. And so the end is coming. That's a sad thing to say. And while I don't consider myself a doomsday preacher, that's what is coming. Death waits for us all. And Jesus He's reminding us of that, but he's also pointing us to not be surprised. And so as we live our lives, live as if there is a tomorrow, and specifically the tomorrow that the Bible informs us of, of judgment. Another point that I want to bring out this morning, point, point number three, is that the judgment is fine. I'm sorry, the final judgment is enlightening. The final judgment is enlightening. In other words, hindsight is 2020. As pain, painful and as, as terrible as it is, the man is able to think extremely clear now. Look at what it says in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man, he wouldn't help Lazarus here on earth. He didn't want to. And now Lazarus... Abraham says, is unable to help the rich man. 
And the rich man, he couldn't even see Lazarus. He wasn't worthy of, 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 of even put, laying his eyes on him. He wasn't, Lazarus wasn't worthy of even eating the crumbs that fell from the table. But he's now satisfied, this rich man, with allowing Lazarus to have a drop of water fall from his sore-covered, slobber-saturated finger. He's okay with that now. Everything's changed. He's seizing loud and clear he sees the truth and this is going to be a truth for all of us that one point in time after the judgment we will see clearly now, I don't want, I'm not saying this and I don't believe Jesus is saying this that, that, that hell is restorative in some form or fashion and that it even in some weird way sanctifies people that are there that's not the purpose of hell in some sense jail is there to bring people back to a state where they can re-enter into society and be a part of society and contribute to it in a, in a healthy, helpful manner. And that is not the purpose of hell. The purpose of hell is not to, uh, to bring people back into restoration and uh, restored uh, life with God. That's not the purpose. It's punitive. It's punishment. It's separation from God. But even in that place, lies that you believed here you will not maybe believe there. And this is one of them. But he in some way was better than Lazarus. That whole dynamic, that whole idea or understanding was shattered. And he was even willing to let dirty old Lazarus drip water into his tongue, which in passing quickly does demonstrate and point to the severity and the pain that is associated with the judgment there in hell. Either way, the rich man, he saw so clearly. I think about Proverbs chapter 6 that tells the story, and I love it in the King James. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Go to the ant. See him. The, one of Aesop's fables um, really kind of captured the idea that the, the scripture is speaking of there, and, and his story called the ant and the ants, rather, and the grasshopper. And I'm going to read that to you. It's brief. One bright day in a late autumn. Uh, in, a, in late autumn, a family of ants were bustling about, about in the warm sunshine and drying out the grain that they had stored up during the summer. When a starving grasshopper, his fiddle under his arm, came up and humbly begged for a bite to eat. What, cried the ants in surprise, haven't you stored anything away for the winter? What in the world were you doing all last summer? And he said, I didn't have any time to store up any food. And he whined on, I was so busy making music that before I knew it, summer was gone. And the ants, they're a bit rude. They shrugged their shoulders in disgust. Making music were you, they cried. Well, very well. Now dance. And they turned their backs on the grasshopper and went on with their work. The moral of the story was there's a time for work and there's a time for play. So would you go to the ant? With information that he has, what does he do? He prepares for, in this stage for the next and this season, he does the work required for the next. Right, when I bring up work, I don't mean to say that there is work that we should do, that we can somehow earn heaven or that we can somehow earn salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Proverbs 6 is saying. But with the information that we have been given, with the information that Jesus is even pointing to uh, us to here in the parable, would we not use that and think? Judgment is coming. This is what he's calling us to. And therefore, what should we do? We should repent. We should do the work of repentance and confessing our sin 
and looking to God in humility, asking him to forgive and trusting that because of Jesus' work on the cross that he will extend that forgiveness to you. This is the only work that we can do if it, be, if it can be called work. So now here in hell, the rich man sees incredibly clear all that he has done, the mistakes that he has made. And as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. And Jesus is saying of the rich man, it's too late for him. But he's saying to you and to me and to those gathered around him on this day, on that day as he gives this parable, that it's not too late for you. And he calls out, maybe even slapping his hands, and he's saying, wake up. Judgment is coming. And do the work of repentance. Well, quickly, let's look back at the text. Look at verse 26. Abraham goes on to say to the rich man, he says, And besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, and in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none of us may cross there to us. This is the point that Jesus is making here that's very plain in the parable, and that's this, that judgment is final and permanent. That judgment is final and permanent. You might have heard people say, it is what it is. It is what it is. Maybe your mother said, you've made your bed, now lie in it. And in some weird way, this is almost what Abraham's saying. This is what you've chosen, and it's final and it's permanent. There's no coming from here to there, or from there to here. There's no returning back to life as you knew it. There's no changing of the conditions. This, this is one of the most terrible aspects of pain in our lives, isn't it? Oftentimes we experience pain and we think, even as adults now, we think, oh, that's not so bad. That, that hurt for a little while. That stung for a minute. Maybe it was a shot or some kind of a scratch or maybe even a sprained ankle or a broken bone. And we think, that's not so bad because it's going to go away. But when you're a child, the worst part of pain is that you don't know if it will go away. How long will this last? Is this permanent? I've said this before, but one of the worst things about death, about losing a loved one, is that it's, it's not temporary. It's not an extended holiday or, or a vacation. It's permanent. And the judgment of God upon those who rebel against him is permanent and it's final. And there's no going from this to that. There's no period of time in hell and then somewhere else and then returning to heaven. That's, that's not the case. Again, some weird false doctrine built off private interpretation and tradition. There's no temporary place. And I would also, not in some sarcastic or even caustic way, but I would want to be very clear. We believe that hell is a real place. The scriptures teach of it. Jesus time and time again, Jesus believed that hell is real. If Jesus believed that hell was a real place, we should as well. And in our, maybe even with, in, with kindness and sincerity in our hearts, we desire that, that hell be deleted or erased. And yet, Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. But God's wrath burns against those who rebel against him. And his judgment is permanent and final. Look at verse 27 again, though. It says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that I may warn them, or so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he says to them again, if they do not hear Moses, and he said to them, or to him, if, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's talk about that just for a minute. Again, he, he's thinking clearly for, for once. He's made his request to return or to, to have Lazarus come to him, and that's been denied. And now he says, well, send Lazarus from your side, back down to tell my brothers. One of the most interesting things about this passage, and I, here and I, I think this is where and why Jesus gave the name Lazarus. And here's why. Because you remember the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is a form of Eleazar, which means the one whom God helps. And Lazarus, there was another man by the name of Lazarus, a real person, this is not a parable, the brother of Mary and Martha, and this man died. And Jesus, what did he do? It's a long, extended story. We won't get into all of it, but he comes to the grave of Lazarus. And by now, the, the Bible says that, that one of the, I think it was Martha said, he stinketh. He stinks. He's dead. He's been dead for some time. And what does Jesus do to the dead man? This really happened. He says, Lazarus, come forth. God helps the dead man. And what does he do? He wobbles out of the grave and he says, Loose him, let him free, he's tied up. Help him out. Don't just stand there gawking. And what happened? What does it say happened after that moment? What does it say about the Pharisees when they saw a dead man raised from the dead? That they began to believe Moses and the prophets, didn't they? No. It says at that moment, they hated him even more, and they determined that they would kill him. You see, I want to just take a moment and say this, that there is no miracle that will make you believe. This morning, if you struggle with doubt, and you say, I don't even know why you just referenced some 2,000-year-old prophet raising somebody from the dead. Are you loony? If that's the definition, then yes, I am. But either way, even if that took place, here this morning, and you as a critic would look on, that's not going to change your mind. It's not truly going to change your heart. You see, the book of Ezekiel tells us, it's a prophecy about the people of God, the new covenant, that God is extending to his people, his new covenant people. And he says, I will take out their heart of stone, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. You see, a heart of stone cannot believe, even if it sees a dead man raised from the dead. And the Pharisees are witnesses of that. They saw a dead man raised by the power of Yahweh. And what did they do? They hated that prophet. So there's no amount of information or apologetics. As helpful as they may be, those things will bear no fruit if you do not hear and pay attention, as Mark 16 says, to the Moses and the prophets. And so my last point, Jesus' last point that I would argue is that the judgment that is coming is avoidable. The judgment that is coming is avoidable. In other words, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be the same way. Your story, your ending, doesn't have to be the same way as the rich man. Again, look at these two. Lazarus, rich man. One, fares sumptuously, dies, spends eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And Lazarus, what does he do? He dies poor, and with nothing to his name, 
except for a few stray dogs, and yet he's carried into heaven to spend eternity there, never to lack, never to need. So those two men contrast, but I think now let's zoom out, still staying in chapter 16, but not just in the, first, in the second parable, but let's look at the first parable and contrast that one with the second one. I won't spend a ton of time going over the first parable, but the first parable that we see there at the beginning of chapter 16 is about a rich man, again, who has a manager. And this manager, he uses his opportunities that he has in his day, in that stage of life, to leverage for the next season. You see, he finds out he's about to lose his job. We're not exactly sure what means he takes. Whether it's dishonest, we don't know. We can assume it probably was, but we're not 100% sure. But one thing we do know, that when he found out he was losing his job, and that judgment, in a sense, was coming for him, and because he would have to be either a beggar or a hard worker, and he could not be either because of his pride, he determined that he would find a way to make friends. And so he calls in the, the guys who have accounts with his, with his master, and he says, how much, uh, how much do you owe my master? And one of them says, I owe 100 uh, barrels of wheat. And he says, I'll tell you what, bud, why don't you cross out the 100 and mark down 50? And the guy's like, are you, are you serious? You're kidding me. Yeah, just, yeah, don't, don't forget me. I'm your friend, right? The guy gets out of there skipping, hopping, and jumping. He's excited. He was relieved of a bunch of debt. Now, now, possibly that could have been his cut. That could have been his commission. That could have been above board that the, the manager would have done that. We're not 100% sure. Either way, he does it again. This time, how much, do, how much do you owe my master? Well, maybe I owe him 70. Well, mark out 70 and why don't you write 50? And on and on that goes. And this man creates friends for the next phase of life because, in fact, he does lose his job. And we can assume that in that next season of life, he is cared for by the friends that he made there by that act. So he's praised for being shrewd. He, he's, he's praised for being able to hustle, but also to be, because he's wise enough to see that hard times are coming, that judgment, in a sense, is coming, the day of reckoning is nigh, and that he should be prepared for it. So what does he do? He's praised. In contrast, the rich man, the end of the chapter, doesn't see his judgment coming. He doesn't see the hard days coming, and he faces them headlong, and he suffers as a result of them. So who are you in that parable? Who are you in these parables? Are you the one that sees and hears the grace of God extended to you, even this morning, perhaps for the first time, that doom, judgment is nigh, that you'll be judged for your sins. And if you do not repent of your sins, you'll, place eternity separated, you'll, you'll face eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Or will you repent? Will you prepare and do the work that you can as the man in the beginning of the chapter and use the means and the information that you've been given to receive the gift of God and to be prepared for judgment? The final judgment, listen, it's coming. And it's often surprising and it's enlightening, and it's permanent, but listen, it's avoidable. You can, in a sense, you can be prepared for that judgment. You can be prepared for that judgment. So this month, we've spent some time identifying or asking the question of one another, who is your one? We recognize that the Lord has sovereignly determined our place and time of dwelling, 
and those who also are living and dwelling close to us. And so we've identified and said, well, if that's true, and he's also called us to be evangelistic, then there is somebody that he wants us to share this message with. There's somebody in your life that needs to hear this message. And so I would ask you this morning, Christian, as you've received this good news and you've even prepared by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus, identify even now, who is it that needs to hear this message? Who do you know that needs to know this? Who needs to be prepared? And perhaps there's somebody else here this morning. You say, that somebody that needs to hear this is me. You say, that's, that's me. I need to be prepared. I, I'm not. The invitation would be from Jesus this morning. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, who are weary. He says, I will give you rest. So maybe this morning you're, not just this morning, but you're weary, you're tired. You don't know what your future holds. You don't know what the judgment will be for you. And now you do know. And Jesus says to you, come to me. And by coming to Jesus, that's repenting of your sin, admitting that you've sinned against God, that you've rebelled against him, confessing that you have loved yourself more than others, that you have loved yourself more than God. Repenting and turning from that and trusting that because you've done that, because Jesus has died and shed his blood, that it will pay for your sins. Church, there is a judgment coming for us all. However, the Bible has been given to us to show that we might be prepared. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have truly provided a way for us to be prepared. We pray that the one this morning that is far from you, that's not turned from their sins, that they would hear this message this morning and that they would repent, turn from their sins and look to the cross and receive forgiveness. And God, we pray that they would even speak to one of us, not that it's necessary, but that we would rejoice with them that they have found rest in you. So we pray that that would be true. But Father, we also pray that you would embolden us, that you would empower us to share your word. And that as we consider the reality of judgment, as we consider the reality of a place called hell, that it would motivate us, that it would bring us to the place that we would go and that we would sell. And we pray that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen.